Today's episode of the Mets Up Podcast is sponsored by Anchor. If you haven't heard about Anchor, it's the easiest way to make a podcast. Let me explain. It's free. First off, that's huge. And that's what we use here on the Mets Up Podcast. I highly suggest it. There are creation tools that allow you to record and edit your podcast right from your own phone or computer. Anchor will distribute your podcast for you so it can be heard on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and many other streaming services. And you're allowed to make money from your podcast from day one with no minimum listenership. It's literally everything you need to make a podcast in one place. So make sure you guys download the free Anchor app or go to anchor.fm to get started. What is up, Mets Up listeners? We are back here for episode number 33 of the Mets Up podcast. Of course, with your co-host, I'm Giraffneck Mark. Mark Luino here with James Shiano. Jeter had no range on Twitter. Follow us both over there. Talking about the New York Mets series that just finished up against the Pittsburgh Pirates, where uh, it wasn't great. It wasn't a particularly good series anyway you slice it. Now, the Mets did end strong, and we got a lot to talk about with Game 3, which will, co- of course, come towards the end of the podcast. But this is, a, this is a series that is starting to build a lot of storylines, a lot of narratives, a lot to talk about here. Lindor hurt, the Grom hurt, the team not playing well, getting smacked around by the Pittsburgh Pirates. Where do we stand? That's why you're here. You want to know what me and James got to say about the New York Mets baseball, as you always do. So if you're listening to us, make sure you're listening to us on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify. Give us a rating as well. Drop a review. It really does help out the podcast. Follow us on Twitter and Instagram at MetsUp. And on the YouTube channel, MetsUp Podcast, where you can watch the video form of these episodes. James, how are we doing? How are we feeling? I'm doing good otherwise. Like, the Mets really tried to do everything they can to m- kill my mood for this entire weekend, but we're okay. I'd like all of our viewers on YouTube to notice again that Mark and I are doing podcasts on the road. We're both in front of lovely large paintings. Yeah, yours looks a little more in-depth and my, a little more... Mine is mine is abstract. I'm not really sure what it is. Looks it just a little seems like, It se- seems like a, a mother and two children who are upset. <laughs> it's pretty sad. <laughs> Yeah, some Chiraskuro. Now, mine, I have a beautiful, I don't know, Greek or Italian cove where there's some boats hanging out. It looks like a beautiful, beautiful area. I'd like to visit it. Um, but yeah, we're, we're in different places. Yeah, different places. But mentally, we're also in different places because the Mets did everything they could in, in three days to literally ruin their entire season. There were moments during today's afternoon where... I was completely reserved to the fact that baseball was over for the year. I was trying my hardest to not be down and be upset. So I like I, I saw this like six nothing first inning, just real quick briefing on it, and I said, I'm gonna turn this game off. And then I got a phone call and it ended up like keeping me watching the game because I'm not gonna change the channel while I'm on a phone call. That's crazy person stuff. And it just kind of kept me in it, which we'll talk about that a little bit more, but game three had the makings of what could have been the end of the season, but luckily we won. But let's start off with game one here, where the Mets, you know, Pittsburgh Pirates, this should be a very easy series, and uh, Chad Cool pitched well. Yeah. Chad cooled us off? Oh, Chad is anything but cool. That guy is just, like, he has a little bit of stuff once in a while, but also not really. He's just not very good. Yeah, he, I think we said a couple episodes ago that he has all the makings of being a pretty good reliever. If I was a contender at the deadline, I would try and like pinpoint him as someone to acquire to transition to the bullpen so we could just focus on his fastball and slider because those two pitches are pretty decent. But also, if anyone out here is existing in Pirates Twitter, you have to make your name like Chad Jewell, like J-U-H-L. That would be a hilarious bit to start running with on Twitter or wherever he gets traded, whoever wants to do that like if he's a met i'll happily do that as my name james jewel or chad jewel but it was horrific to watch chad cool dice us up for what it was like five innings on friday night it was awful baseball to watch that was like the worst five inning performance i've ever seen where the guy didn't really get shelled like the fact that we gave up so we had so many double plays for us on offense we couldn't drive in the runs it was against chad friggin cool it felt so bad that was like really really tough and frustrating game to watch because this guy was not particularly pitching well but we also were not hitting very well when we needed it 
No, the Mets had guys on basically every single inning. At least it felt like that. And just continuous double play after double play to send us out of innings over and over and over again. Just not being able to break through, which was a big um, talking point for the Mets in the first half. And it was super discouraging that we started off the second half right back into that mode. Yep, right back into it. And it felt like anything that could go wrong that night was going wrong. And that's kind of the whole thing for this entire seven-game stretch against the Pirates, which should never be a sentence that either of us says is that when you're playing the Pirates, everything should be going right because it can go right because they're the friggin' Pittsburgh Pirates. But this game was a bad start to the series. Adam Frazier, who Mets fans still want, that guy is so mid. He's the definition of a mid player. I've never been less excited to watch a player. The only guy that I'm less excited about in Major League Baseball than Adam Frazier is his teammate Kevin Newman. <laughs> Fucking Kevin Newman. Adam Frazier, to sum it up as perfectly as possible, is a pesky fuck. That's all he is. He's not one of the rat fucks. We're not putting him on there. There's going to be a new, um, I don't cool. even know. Uh, I know who yeah, it is. New, John Nagowski, new, right? Of course, yeah. yeah. <laughs> I, I didn't want to spoil the intro, but he's going to be a new, uh, dumb, I don't even know, a dignified addition to the rat fuck list. But Adam Frazier is not that. He is pesky. He is so annoying. He is just such a little shit. He just has seven pitch at bats time and time again. He hits the ball the opposite direction. It's fucking annoying to watch Adam Frazier play. I can't stand him. I can't stand him. The the dude has 27 doubles on the year and has four barrels. Four. He has bared the ball up four times. That's four more than me and you have. That's insane. And this is a guy that someone wants to trade for. Listen, you want to give us Adam Frazier for free? Sure. I'll, I'll take him any day for free. He is a competent. He's a good baseball player. Like at the end No, of the he's day, fine. Like, yeah. For free. But if the Mets are yeah. trying to make moves here and Adam Frazier like, doesn't really have a spot, I don't get it. But boy, did he really fool some Mets fans, including Keith Hernandez, who Keith is in love with this Pittsburgh Pirates team. This They can't do anything wrong. He's the exact type of guy that Keith Hernandez would fall in love with, too, because Keith Hernandez can watch Adam Frazier take two deep breaths and think about 1977. He has a mustache, a full head of hair, cigarettes in the dugout, and you're hitting the field opposite direction, hitting 320, winning an MVP award. This makes Keith Hernandez want to watch baseball again, Adam Frazier. Literally. It gives him life. Like watching him, Newman, John Nagowski, these are all dudes who were like high contact, very low power, very low like upside from what they're actually going to be able to do on the field, but they will hit you a single. And we saw this happen, and it's actually funny. I think the Pirates could have smacked us a lot more in a lot of these games, but they simply can't get extra base hits when there's guys on. They love a good single. No, they can't. This is a stat I was going to throw out later in the episode when we are going to be talking about McGill, but the Pirates, as a team, actually have the second lowest whiff rate in all of baseball. Which is... The only, only team with a lower whiff rate in them is the Houston Astros. Which, you know, is funny because going up against Stroman, who's a guy who doesn't typically get a lot of whiffs, this is going to be weird to say, but they're a bad matchup because he's a guy who pitches the contact and they will single you to death. And that's kind of a little bit what happened with Stroman. Yeah, super bad matchup, but also what you were saying, while the Pirates have the second lowest whiff rate in the league, they have the least barrels. Yes, because they're just not good. They're they're one of the worst teams in baseball for good reason. They don't have the talent. Now, they do have some good guys in Brian Reynolds, key Brian Hayes, who really didn't hurt us too badly this series, but... Oh God, it's just so it's so annoying to see literally John Nagowski playing the game of his life. The game of his life, the series of his life, the week of his life. John Nagowski has basically guaranteed himself to get to like 50 days of service time before, by, by rather than the 30 he already has with this magnificent stretch against the fucking Mets. It's ridiculous. And since we're talking about John Nagowski, I think we should just get into the brouhaha now while we're here before I break down to Stroman. It was such a... It was such a non-fucking issue. What like a, a mongoloid meathead, John Nagowski, trying to make a big scene out of not, he Stroman got out of an inning. There's a guy in third with less than two outs. Stroman was like got he got out of it. He worked out of a jam after he made an error too. So he was already like pressing a little bit because he tried to get like that was it a bunt or a chopper that he threw away, moved the guy something in third. like that. Yeah, and Marcus Stroman he plays with his heart on his sleeve anyway. Like he's a vivacious animated character. Whatever you want to pull from that, you can't be offended as the, the batter who's been in the major leagues for three weeks, that the multi, multi-time multi all-star on the mound is excited that he got out of an inning and kept his team in a one-run game. In a game that the Mets did seem like they may have been pressing a little bit. I don't know. It just seems like pressure mounted, especially losing two in a row to the Pirates before the break. Didn't seem like this was a mental break for anybody on the team. They came out on Friday night like really wanting to hit and really needing to do it. Yeah, very tight. And I think this fight kind of embodied that. 
it just everyone got really aggressive really quickly. Stroman got so worked up, he just threw up on the field. I mean, like, <laughs> I've never seen someone who, like, is about to get into a fight, get so worked up, and then, like, when he calms down, just yak. And then what's crazy is when he got back into the dugout, he had to, like, Rojas was, like, holding him down. He was ready to go back on the field and start fighting again, and they were even cutting to him, and you could see him mouthing that fucking fuck. Like, he was just dropping F-bombs everywhere. He immediately chirped Nagowski the next inning because Nagowski was playing first base and the road team, the Mets were on the first base line. He was actually no. Yeah, they were on the first base line. Yeah, but that's weird. City Field, they're home on the first base line. Yeah, it's it's different every stadium. Oh, that's weird. All right, but yeah, he was chirping him the whole time, and like in um and our guy uh, Jim Boy's breakdown, he actually showed like for two innings that Stroman was chirping at him, and it's even funnier when you try to watch them fight because Marcus Stroman is. 190 pounds soaking wet, 5'7". Five foot, foot yeah, I was going to say 5'7". He's a small in stature. John Nagowski looks like the first baseman in an animated short. Like, he is he is who a cartoonist will draw as the first baseman for the Pittsburgh Pirates. John Nagowski is almost like the dude from, uh, like, those, like, baseball movies, like, Rookie of the, Rookie, Rookie of the Year. Literally, where it's like yes. The bad man who's got, like, the glasses, and, like, he, he's just this big portly guy who gets up to the plate, and he just takes hacks, but he doesn't really do much. It's John Nagowski. That's John Nagaski. Loser. I hope he gets sent down in the near future, oh, even though he probably God. won't. But ah, I don't want to see this guy anymore. I'm really tired of him. He's part of, he's part of the ref fuck list, officially. Yeah, yeah, 100%. I tweeted out, fuck John Nagowski immediately when that happened. And I was like, this is a guy that we're going to see for some reason for the rest of our lives, and I'm going to hate him. Two other funny things I wanted to mention about the uh, the spat was... Noah Syndergaard being in the middle of it. Yeah, where did he? Why is he in Pittsburgh? Was he doing? In no Pittsburgh? idea. No idea. With with a fresh haircut too. He was planning to get on television. I assume. Looking good. He was shaved on the sides. Yeah, looked great. Looks very burly. Like I hope. I think he's been throwing, so that's a good thing. Also, Dave Jouse, what a legend. Legend, absolute legend. Legend. He he made up for his um. I don't know if you remember this, but two years ago, around the same time of year, also in Pittsburgh, when they had the fight with Yasiel Puig. He was on the uh, Reds. The Reds. No, he, he was a bench coach for the Pirates, Joust, before under Clint Hurdle. And he famously was like the last guy out of the dugout during that brawl. And it kind of made rounds around social media for a while afterwards. Like, oh, Joust couldn't get out there quicker? Like, he was like laboring onto the field when like there were the 11 guys, like on Amir Garrett. And it was funny, he was like third guy in the dugout this time. He's like, not again. No, <laughs> I'm out there. Dude, Joust, Joust is our boy. Joust is our lord and savior for this team right now. He's winning home run derbies and he's managing games in game three. But we'll talk about that in a sec. Yeah, and then now that we've just moved around a lot, to talk about Strowman's game. Because it was, I think, good, not great. And this becomes even more important moving forward because Marcus Strowman is going to have a, an increased role with this team given the, the recent news about Jacob deGrom. He did what he does in the games where he is good, not great, where he just went full sinker mode. But like you alluded to before, I think that may have been an adjustment just because they're facing the Pirates, a team that doesn't whiff very often but also does not make hard contact. So I think he was okay with letting the ball be put in play. And it did turn out to be fine. Like, his line wasn't bad. He kept the Mets firmly in the game. Like, you should expect that if you give up two runs, and I believe he pitched six innings against the Pirates, that you can get enough off Chad Cool for that to be a winning effort. It just it just wasn't. On a different day, it would have been. This day, it was not. His cutter got six, uh, six whiffs on 12 swings. He only got eight the whole game otherwise, though. Like, including those six. He only got two additional whiffs the rest of the whole game. And watching the game, too, it looked like his slider or whatever that pitch was, I, I guess it was his slider. It just didn't have the bite again, so we kind of scrapped it, I think, after like the first couple innings. didn't seem like he was really going to it much, which has been a thing for a while now that the slider has become somewhat ineffective for him. Showed a little bit again. Uh, the other huge story from this game, Lindor. Boy, oh boy, we thought we were getting the cavalry back. Everyone's healthy, and just like that in the first game back, Francisco Lindor out right oblique grade two strain, I think you were saying. Yep, grade two, which traditionally has been like about a month injury in baseball, especially because like you can't really you can't really work that oblique without working it. Like the second you swing, you're activating the oblique, and there's no way to hide it. You can't like come back with it halfway. It's like similar to the hamstring, but I think it's a little bit worse. And I'm a little bit nervous that Francisco, because he is such a big part of this team, is going to try to come back as quickly as possible, and maybe not be 100%. And again, like I just said, that's very difficult to do with an oblique. And I'm just, this, this is a real, this felt like a real death blow when it happened. Yeah, this is a killer because that's like our like least deep position. Like while we have Guillaume, who is our boy, we love Guillaume and we've got, you know, Peraza and we've got VR. You still want, a, like Guillaume is good with the glove at shortstop. Not Lindor good, but he's good with the glove. 
VR gives you the better offense, not much of a glove. Peraza gives you what Peraza does, but he's more of a bench guy. This is now a legitimate hole on this team, and if Lindor is going to be out at least a month, maybe longer, we're going to have to start exploring some options, I think. There's got to be somebody out there. I, I don't think we're going to be going Trevor Story, Javi Baez route, but there's got to be someone available on a, a team that's maybe a non-contender that can slot in and take over for a month. Because as much as I love VR and Guillaume, I think it would feel a lot more comfortable if we had a real everyday player at that spot. I think so too, but the options are not really great. And I think this is why that joke went around Twitter on Saturday, that there that there are a lot of like really awkward, funny fillers that can play shortstop, but they're all pretty unappealing. Yeah, I heard one was like Andrelton Simmons. I was like, God, like... I'd He's rather probably, just, I'd rather we just have Guillaume. Guillaume, yeah, at that point. Same thing. But it legitimately, it is Freddie Galvis, Kevin Newman, Miguel Rojas, I guess, but he actually probably cost a little bit. Like, these are what the options you'd be dealing with. It is tough. And the one, if you want to find a silver lining, this is more of a personal vendetta silver lining, but all of the assholes and idiots, and I'm going to use the word again, mongoloids, for the last couple of months who've been talking about how shit Francisco Lindor is and how this team would be better off without him, you're about to get a taste of your own medicine because this team is going to take a massive, massive, massive hit without Francisco Lindor in the lineup, on the field, in the clubhouse, mixing up with the guys. It's going to, it's going to be such a massive loss that we won't, it's like kind of like we won't even be able to remember what life was like without Lindor, now we've had him for four months, because he is really that good. As he's been that bad, he's still that good. Yep, it's uh, you don't know how good you got it until it's gone. That's the classic saying, and that's what it's going to be with Lindor. On top of the DeGrom injury, we lost arguably our two best players. And I don't think I don't think there's anything to argue. Yeah. Those are <laughs> far and away clearly our two best players. And uh, it's, it's going to be rough. So we lose that game. Uh, it was, you know, whatever. Drew Flo got smacked around a little bit. Familia, friggin' Wilmer Defoe. My God. Yeah. What an, oh, my God. Hot as anybody. and Hot as John Nagowski. Another insane series. I think he was 7 for 10 at one point in the, in the series, which is insane. Dude. And Brian Reynolds, because Defoe and Reynolds both went deep off of our boy Drew Flo and Familia in the late innings on Friday and just absolutely hammered us down, dug our grave, because the Pirates' 18 bullpen worked us again for the second time in a week. But the, the Bednar-Rodriguez pairing at the back end, my God, unhittable. Unhittable. We couldn't touch him. It's just a lot, of, a lot of fastballs. Can't find them. A lot of fastballs. It is what it is. Move on to game two here. Wow. I, I don't even really want to talk about game two because you thought you thought losing that five-run lead to the Pirates the game before the All-Star break was back. I got one better for you. How about a six-run lead? How about that? How's that sound? <sighs> When I was writing the notes for this, I don't even know if it's worth talking about the first seven innings of this game. Like, there's a little bit to say, but the whole story comes in the eighth and ninth inning. Yeah, I mean, we got to talk about J.D. J.D. had a great game. J.D.'s first game back from the I.L., two home runs, smoking baseballs all over the place, two over 105 miles an hour, per notes by James Schiano. Uh, He needs to play every single day because he mashes. He is a very, very, very good offensive player. Defensively, he stinks and doesn't really know what's going on, as we saw in Game 3 today, which, again, we're going to talk about. But, boy, can that kid hit. He can just, he knows how to hit that baseball. That kid steps in there, and I feel good about the at-bat. No, but he can hit, to make fun of you for a second, calling J.D. Davis a kid. He can really hit. There's nothing else that J.D. Davis can do, and he can definitely hit. And that's kind of what the team needs right now. We have a gigantic gaping hole, Francisco Lindor-sized hole in the middle of this batting order, and J.D. Davis seems like a very logical choice to fill it. What do you think about hitting J.D. Davis too? I love it. When I, text, I texted you during this game, and I said the lineup was abysmal, I think was the word I used. I really, do, I really don't like Alonzo hitting second. I just don't think he makes enough contact to be in that spot. I think three and four suits him a little better. I don't it's weird to say that he doesn't make enough contact and to put J.D. Davis in the two-hole. Like, I really think the guy that can four, though, is the one who has to fill that spot right now. I'm hoping that, again, alluding to Game 3, a lot to talk about, that the home run today gets him going. But while J.D. Davis is ripping the cover off the ball, you might as well put him up there. Like, I think the Mets, Luis Rojas, the front office, everyone has to be very fluid with the way this lineup is going to work moving forward, at least for, like, a week or two, to let people find their roles in the life after Francisco Lindor, let whoever gets hot get hot, and put them into their best positions possible to succeed. And right now, that is J.D. Davis, especially more so than a guy like Jeff McNeil. Although Jeff, coming into the series, was hot, and I think he ended up having a pretty fine series as no, well. So. definitely. But the ball sounds differently coming off those two guys' bats. Yes, McNeil right now is hitting singles and doubles down the line. 
J.D. Davis is hitting booming home runs. So J- jump, Jumbo donks. Jumbo donks for Justinger's Davis. So uh, he was the bright spot. And the Mets offense did do good. The Mets scored six runs in this game. We had a 6 nothing lead. Tyler McGill was fantastic again. It's just frustrating. McGill was McGill was very good, but we're continuing to get to this stage now with McGill where every single start, the whiffs are just getting less and less and less, something I've been alluding to for a couple weeks now. Just throwing 55% fastballs, especially against a team like the Pirates that doesn't whiff, it's not going to work indefinitely. Again, it did because the Pirates can't put the barrel on the baseball. They didn't have many hard-hit balls against McGill at all. He did get 10 called strikes on those fastballs, which again, 55% of them, not great. And it was fine. This will work against the Pirates. I'm going to be nervous against how this works against the better offenses in the National League. Yeah, I don't know. I don't. I feel pretty comfortable with Tyler McGill, and maybe it's me trying oh, to be... Yeah, I feel super comfortable with him in general. I'm just... I think that he was um, put on a pedestal after his first few starts as like a budding ace, like a top-notch prospect, a guy who's going to be striking people out, running his rotation. He's, been a, he's going to become a mainstay for us in his rotation. I don't know where... The Mets would be without Tyler McGill right now, which is a balls crazy sentence to say out loud. If you would like just go back in time a month, that would have been an unbelievable thing to hear. But we have to think of him more as like a back of the rotation guy than a front of the rotation guy. Yes, very reminiscent of the Lugo Gasalman days back in 2016. I think you're going to see McGill step up just like those guys did. He's a very good pitcher. I think uh, that's a guy that we're going to be. It's it's really nice for a team that has some guys coming up on contracts for pitchers to see him be able to perform like this and see that there's something there makes it a little bit easier when you get to free agent talks. Yeah, no doubt. And Tyler McGill is literally doing historic things in his first five starts of this team. Two, six, three ERA in his first five starts, yet he is winless. Yeah, it's crazy. That's so Mets. That's so Mets. He is the first Met to be winless in his first five starts since Jacob DeGrom. Well, I was just about to say, he's doing his best Jacob DeGrom impression, even started the same, like made his debut on the same day at the same age, right? So it's only fitting that the guy who is, you know, the next Jacob deGrom, even though he's clearly not, is doing the exact same thing that Jacob deGrom does. The Mets are winning his games, except this one. They just couldn't get him a win. Yeah, so um, Trevor May, seventh inning. Mm-hmm. Not not a great start. No, it was a very bad start to the end of the game. It may call the bad omen. It just yeah, that's felt- when you, you start watching this game as a Mets fan, you go... No, uh, we're letting them hang around. Mm-hmm. They're hanging around, and you don't you want to bury teams. You can't let them hang around. Yeah, it was like you could just like smell something was afoot. Like there was an and, issue happening. And the Pirates seemed like a team that really enjoyed beating the Mets. And that might be a weird sentence to say, but especially after the Stroman fight with Nagowski, they were like playing. They were playing with like house money almost. Like, yeah, we're gonna come out here. We're gonna embarrass you. We know we're the worst team in baseball, but we're gonna ruin your season. One hundred percent. And this affects nobody on either of these teams. But this is one of the old school baseball rivalries. Like if you think back to the 60s, 70s, and part of the 1980s, like these teams didn't like each other. They played often. I think they were both in the Eastern Division. And it was, this was a real-life rivalry. It actually felt like that for part of this last week plus that we've played against, though. Just week. The week plus that we've played against the Pittsburgh Pirates. This ties back to something that both of us have made fun of a lot this year, either personally hanging out or on this podcast and it's the weird Manfred schedule where you'll knock out an entire season series with a team over a one week stretch because it seems like these two teams have become well acquainted over these last few games and it was very very evident towards the end of Saturday night for two teams that couldn't really have less of an impact on each other and really like shouldn't have any animosity towards each other these teams don't like each other I think that became very clear it's very clear. Very, very, very clear. And the bittersweet part about the end of this game was the fact that the Mets' offense kept responding as the bullpen kept letting the Pirates get back in the game. It was awful. Yeah. Uh, Guillaume, uh, you know, reached on error, and then he got driven in to make it six runs. Like, the Mets were doing all the stuff that makes you go— Nemo hit a home run? Yeah, and you're like, that's why they're better than the Pirates, because they're they're not going to give up tonight. This is This is different than the old Mets— and then the eighth inning happened. Yeah, this was the old Mets. And Seth Lugo, who I like the call by Rojas to bring in Lugo, get the win. He hadn't pitched in like six or seven days, whatever it was. Right decision to bring him in. Since the doubleheader last yeah. Saturday, one week. Lugo was off. He was off from the start, walking batters, giving up hits all over the place. Got the bases loaded with no outs. Eventually got it to 6-2 with, I think, what, two outs? One or two outs? Two outs, I think. And who steps to the plate? But Wilmer... Friggin' Defoe, 
And while Lugo didn't have it, you know, there's been some talk about whether or not Lugo should have been pulled at that moment. If you bring in loop, whatever it's going to be. Seth Lugo's got to get Wilmer Defoe out. There's no world where Wilmer Defoe should be beating Seth Lugo, especially with a home run. Yes. And this wasn't just a cheap home run. He hit into the friggin' Allegheny River. He... It's as if he knew what pitch was coming, and like Maybe he, he used he used guest pitch on MLB the show, and it's like, hey, it's coming right here, it's coming right here, you can't miss it. Really bad changeup. Rojas even talked about it after the game. He hated the pitch call, which is interesting. Rojas not making the pitch calls, which I think that's also interesting to note. I think we've known that this whole year, right? I mean, James. I think, McC- at, I think at times he will take over, and I think it's more so with Nito. I think he allows McCann to call the game, but I think with Nito, he's a little bit more hands on with the pitch calling. But he did not like the 2-0 changeup, and I agree with him. Changeup is Lugo's, what, fourth pitch, and we're going to that 2-0. I don't think it's the right call. But at the end of the day, Lugo put himself in the situation where the Pirates are rallying late in a 6 nothing game, and it became 6-5 real quick. Yeah, very quickly. And I don't even like the concept of throwing Wilmer Defoe a 2-0 changeup. Espe- yeah, especially a righty versus a lefty, something we've talked about a lot on this podcast, like... I think there is credence to the idea that maybe he should have been pulled in this spot just because of how arduous the inning was before Wilmer Defoe got to the plate. Like, if Seth Lugo looked good and the Pirates had a couple bloops and, like, a tough walk, then I get, like, all right, he's in it. Like, there's energy happening right now. I should leave him in. But Seth Lugo from the jump had nothing. Nothing at all. There was no juice, whatever. And I won't kill Rojas for that decision. Some people have, which I think is ridiculous that you're killing Luis Rojas for his two best relievers, giving up not... uh, we don't know yet. We don't know what happened in ninth inning yet. We're going to get to that. We're going to get to that. Teasing it. Teasing it. Big show. Big show. But you just have to get one more Defoe out. You have to get him out. You have to get him out. And then, you know, Nimmo, uh, did Nimmo respond? He gave the home run? Yeah, yeah he Nim- had the that home was run the next, the next inning, mm-hmm. uh, which was great because that was like, oh, damn, okay. That was a huge insurance run. Edwin's been great all year, but no one feels safe in a one-run game, especially when the team just scored five the inning before that. And then Edwin came in, and with the first pitch, he drilled Cabrian Hayes. I mean, drilled is used lightly. It grazed off the hairs of his arm, but he still hit him. That's a walk. He then walked Brian Reynolds to get the first two guys on. Then John Nagowski steps up because, of course, he does because he's a rat fuck. And he ropes one down the line. VR makes almost an unbelievable play, almost a game-saving play. It honestly did at that point save the game because that would have scored a run, but he kept it in front of him, smacked off his glove of Luis Guillorme with the wherewithal to get it, try to beat the guy to third, realized he couldn't. Base is loaded, and Jacob Song steps to the plate. Edwin Diaz throws a fastball that is about seven, eight inches inside. At least. I don't I don't know how Jacob Song's one got to this ball. Two, hit it as far as he did, and three, it went out for a home run. I don't, and the that, Mets lose on a walk-off grand slam. It was like the world didn't exist for like three seconds like the entire situation where first of all just Edwin Diaz almost pulling his class his classic Houdini after just putting everybody on base with no remorse immediately that wasn't even a bad pitch he threw to Jacob Stallings that was quite a good one there's no reason Jacob Stallings just swung at that Jacob Stallings will have Michael Confort though he could have let his elbow hit that pitch yeah and it was scored the run which would have been significantly better because the grand slam lost us the game we're up two and we lose by two now but I think what's crazy like the big thing about this thing was Diaz, again, out the gate, not hot. And we've seen that now the last few times, that the first couple batters, he has not been ready to go. Did it against Milwaukee, did it against Pittsburgh, did it against Pittsburgh again. So that's something to keep an eye out for. I, I tweeted out Diaz is back, but I, I, I took that down because I was like, I'm I'm overreacting. That was wrong. That's incorrect. Like Upon further review, he stunk, but he wasn't god-awful. I don't know. It's weird to say when you, you blow a game like that. But, oh, my God, man. Like, I couldn't even believe that ball got out. Dude, there's no reason that ball got out. That ball was hit 93 miles an hour off the bat. It was. It seemed like a fly ball, which is why Diaz pointed, which the point, I, I, you can't we, do that. You can we never have do that. To, you can I know Edwin Diaz probably has never watched Hansel Robles pitch, especially for the Mets. But us Mets fans know, you point to the sky, it is going to the friggin' moon. And while this ball didn't go distance to the moon, it went height to the moon. It did go height to the moon. It was up in the air. Kevin Pillar went completely airborne. He was in the crowd. He was in the second row trying to catch that ball, knock it into fair play, did everything he could to stop it. For all the stat heads at home, the expected batting average on that fly ball was under 100. It's like, I'm sure it was an out in like 25 ballparks in America. I'm sure. I'm sure. City Field, for sure. 
he found like the little the little alcove in left field where it's so shallow for some reason in Pittsburgh. That's like the only spot that's so teeny tiny. Right next to the fence. Right next the, to the uh, pole, the f- I mean. Right next to the pole. Yeah, and the first friggin' row. And the Pirates win, walk-off Grand Slam, icing on the cake of what had been a horrible series and, already. And Jacob Stalling's face, it was like pure shock. He couldn't believe the ball got out. He was like, like had his hands out to the dugout. Like, I, I don't even know. Like, that ball didn't even leave Yankee Stadium in right field. Uh, it's crazy. <laughs> Maybe. I think it left Yankee Stadium in right field. The other weird situation about this Diaz blown save is that it was his third of the season. That those came against the Diamondbacks, the Pirates, and the Pirates. How does that make any sense? He, I think this is a little bit of a story to the Mets this year. They kind of play to their competition, and maybe Edwin Diaz does a little bit too. I can see that, especially what we've talked about him not having a certain amount of juice. He did, he couldn't get juice against the Brewers, which maybe Edmund Diaz just doesn't give the Brewers enough credit because they're such a weird franchise, small market, even though they're very good. But it just sucked that he couldn't finish off a two-run lead against the fucking Pirates. It's crazy how if he did save that game, I think Mets fans would have been singing his praises of like, this is our guy, this is our boy. And now that he blew it, you have a lot of fans back on the Edwin Diaz. I was back on it for five minutes that he was back, that this guy stinks. But then you, you got to think about it deeper, and this guy has been so big for us this year, it would be foolish to write him off because of, like, you're, you're going to blow games. It's going to happen. Yep, it is. And you don't want it to happen. You don't want to give up walk-off grand slams after your setup man just gave up five, four, four or five runs getting before. Yeah, that compounded the issue here. This game realistically should never have even gotten to Edwin Diaz. It just shouldn't have. It did, and he didn't do his job in saving the game, but... There were so many things that went wrong before Edwin Diaz blew the save. I'm not give, letting him off the hook, but this was a team loss. This was not Edwin Diaz loss. He could have won it, but he didn't lose it. I like saying it's a Lugo Diaz loss. I don't know. The team scored six, seven runs or whatever it was. Like, the offense actually showed up, so I won't ever give them any credit or slack. But Lugo and Diaz blew this one, which is not a sentence I thought I would say in a six-run game. Last thing I want to point out about Diaz is that he has lost a lot of spin on his fastball since June 13th. And you can take that however you want it. I'm not accusing anyone of anything. But he has lost a lot of spin, his fastball, and his slider since June 13th. A lot. A ton. And what's interesting is his fa- he's been throwing like 100, I feel like, more consistently. But the, the spin's not there. And it also feels like this is sh- purely anecdotal. I feel like he's not getting swings and misses as much. But anyway, bad game. And it was feeling real bad. Lose, what, three in a row to the Pirates? Four in a row to the Pirates. Oh, actually, no, it wasn't four because we won the first game of the doubleheader on Saturday. So you lost four out of five to the Pirates. Four out of five to the Pirates. Bad, bad, bad series to the Pittsburgh Pirates. They're a bad team. And this team had to show a little bit of life in game three on Sunday. And uh, no. Now, I will say this. I called Rojas getting ejected. That night when the Mets blew it, I texted my dad. I said, Rojas is 100% getting ejected tomorrow. Guarantee. Boy, was I right. Now, did I expect it to come the way it did? Absolutely not. Our boy, Taiwan, in the day, which is disappointing because he is our day man, he was not fighter of the night man. He was he, bad. He was not the champion of the sun. No, he was not even, he was a master of none. <laughs> oh, he was so bad. He had nothing. Not one thing even got close to working for Taiwan. I thought it was also funny how you said the team had to come out with some life, that we did load the bases in the top of the first inning with one out and couldn't get the run home. Well, yeah, because, I mean, we're still the 2021 New York Mets. What is RISP? In that moment, I was like, uh, something, something bad's going to happen. And something really, really, really bad happened immediately after. Immediately. Yeah, Taiwan, um, not a great job on the mound. Letting a lot of guys on, walks, hits, this and that. And then who hit the who hit the little uh, nubber? Was it Kevin Newman? I think it was. I honestly don't even know. But there was a home run that was hit before that. See, you see, my brain's not even there because I was just so very focused on this weird meltdown that we had. I'm gonna who hit the home run? I'm gonna I'm gonna pull the play by play right now. Cause it, I, don't, I don't even remember. It might have been Defoe. I was about to say, was it Wilmer Defoe? It might have been Defoe. Oh, it was not a home run. It was a single by Reynolds after Defoe hit a double, score them. Okay. So that's yeah. what we got. Yeah. All you need to know is that the Mets were in a hole early. You want to keep that? We're not, we're not editing that out? Nah, keep it in there. Keep All it right, in there. Let it. the people know how the brains are working here. We're talking about the Pittsburgh Pirates game. This is a very conversational episode. <laughs> and uh, there's a little dribbler. I believe it was hit by Kevin Newman. I could be wrong. It was hit Kevin, by Kevin Newman. Yeah, of course it was because mm-hmm. 
that guy actually that's the, really he's really good at doing that. That's the extent of Kevin Newman's power to uh, the pull side. He's sick at like swinging bunts. He's awesome at it. Hits it down the line. The ball's foul. Taiwan Walker makes an interesting decision. Something to, I don't support. Yeah, I I never support swatting the ball away. Uh, MLB the MLB the show does this all the time, and I hate it. I go, uh, no one would ever do this. This is stupid. Taiwan did it, and the ball was called fair. And what made it even worse is that the bases were loaded, so a guy's scoring automatically. While the ball is kicked away, no one goes to run after it. Instead, all three Mets, JD, Taiwan, and Nito, decide to argue with the umpire. So another run scores. Oh, and, and episode, on top of that, Mr. Jonathan VR, shortstop extraordinaire, covered third base. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> and then on top of that, two-run score, here comes a third guy. And a third guy scores on a swinging bunt because we were arguing. And while I think there was some credence to the argument, I, re- I truly don't know if that ball is fair or foul. It, was it, looked, very, it definitely looked like it was on the line. It the was one thing, very, very close. The one thing that could have made it foul was I thought it hit off Newman's calf. Mm-hmm. It seemed that way. None of the replay angles showed that conclusively, and you couldn't really tell. But the one replay they had, you can't call that ball foul. You just can't. It would be tough. It would be really hard. But the angle also wasn't great. You, like, we don't have an angle that's like actually yeah. legitimately on the line. Why don't we have cameras like the NFL where they can like zoom in, the NBC it, like to the fucking blade of grass to show me that that heel is just a quarter inch above the white line and turns out to be a touchdown? Why don't we there have sh- that in baseball? There should be pylons on the grass behind home plate. <laughs> That are just the pylon cam, but down the lines, so that if there's ever an issue, we can just look at it. I'm just asking for the zoom feature. That's all I want. I just want to zoom in. <laughs> Is that but too anyway, much to ask? No, it's not too much to ask. And it would have been nice because Rojas came out, of course, was hot and fulfilled my prophecy. Got tossed in the first inning. Luis Rojas. Let me tell you, if I didn't like this guy already, I love him even more. He was ready to actually fight an umpire. He pushed the guy. He pushed him. Might be suspended for a game or two because I think if you touch an umpire, you end up getting suspended. For the boys, love yeah, Luis Ross. Had to had to be detained. I'm not even going to say he had to be held back. He had to be detained. Three coaches. Was, three three coaches, coaches had to hold him back. Yes, three coaches had to hold him back. He was ready to rip a head off of somebody, and it was good. I think the Mets team needed a little bit of kick in their ass, a little spark, something because I mean they came out so flat with failing in the first thing with the bases loaded. Taiwan, we love you, but you stunk today. There's no way around it. You have four walks and like seven batters. That's like the definition of like, that's a team flat. That's a team that's just kind of going through the motions. Nobody was awake. No one was stepping up. Luis Rojas gets tossed. Our man Dave Joust takes over. And it seemed like that is what this team needed. Because, you know, as we're coming down the line here, I know you're going to talk a little bit more about what happened with the relievers and everything. But the Mets, a little bit of a comeback here. And the Mets end up winning this game. Despite being down 6 nothing in the first inning, let's talk about the bullpen who gave us eight and two-thirds innings of scoreless baseball, getting started by Drew Flo, who did a fantastic job again because, of course, he did because he's our boy, and he is going to quickly become a very, very highly touted reliever, I think, in this Mets bullpen, especially with how Castro's been pitching and stuff like that. But even Castro got in today, and Castro pitched well, and Trevor May got the save, and Loop came in, and Loop danced out of trouble like I've never seen before. He got the bases low with no outs, threw an absolute dot to Adam Frazier on the outside corner, strike three. Sit down, Adam Frazier, you pesky asshole. He threw a dot to Wilmer Defoe, a fastball low and in or cutter, whatever that pitch is, low and into Defoe from the right side. Defoe took it, took it looking, strike three. And then I think he got, what, uh, Brian Reynolds on a like sick little changeup that he threw, low and away, and he somehow got out of the inning that he, he caused some trouble with no runs. I mean... The bullpen stepped up as bad as they were in Game 2. Boy, did they make up for it in Game 3. I love that how you're referring to Adam Frazier and Wilmer Defoe as, like, vaunted superstars of the game. You're like, he threw a dot to Wilmer Defoe. It's like, okay, it's Wilmer Defoe. Like, usually that wouldn't be an issue. But after his last couple games, he might be Barry Bonds. I'm not sure. But our boy Drew Flo really stepped up. This was the first time that Drew Flo got the national appeal that we've been begging for since April. I alluded, I I said alluded like six times this episode. I mentioned about a month ago that I thought Drew Smith could be a guy who gave the Mets bulk and potentially like started some games like in the Gerard Eikhoff mold. And he came in the first inning today, he mixed three pitches and he kept the Pirates at bay, which again, I'm talking about the Pirates like they are the Dodgers, but he kept the, he kept the terrifying Pirates at bay for 
um, I think two and a third innings. Three yeah, got through three innings. Like regardless of what team you play, for the bullpen to keep them scoreless for eight and two thirds is quite the feat in of itself. And this bullpen stepped the fuck up for us when we needed it. And luckily, the offense woke up a little bit. Like we said, they got runners on early. I mean, who did we go up against today? JT Brubaker, who we smacked around the other day. Like, he's just not a very good pitcher. Luckily, we got to them. I mean, the the notes here, guys, if you can see them, it's funny. It starts off with ha, 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 ha. Then the wheels fell off. Not watching this rest of this game. I don't give a fuck. It was so downhill. And then all of a sudden, how did this team win? Bullpen stepped up. Offense stepped up. What a difference a few hours can make. I mean, Travis Blankenhorn. Let's talk about him. First off, he had a really good series, a couple, couple nice hits, and, and he hit a big pinch hit three-run home run today. He crushed that ball. He really did. I didn't realize until today his name was going around Twitter a lot that Blankenhorn was actually a former like third-round pick. He's actually might, might be a little player. I, was, I said that to my dad today. I said there might be a little something in Travis Blankenhorn. I don't know where he can play in the field because that glove's not particularly strong anywhere. But there might be a little bit of a player there, a bat bat, a bat on the bench. You you were alluding to 2016 before, how McGill kind of is acting like Gazelman and Lugo. He's starting to kind of act like our TJ Rivera. Yeah, where he could just be a guy who's like not really good in the field, but could just hit a little bit and fill in when you need him, a couple clutch hits, because that home run today changed everything. Well, yeah, I even tweeted out because I, I was done with the game. I had it on, but I was like doing work and side stuff and just kind of peering over. And then Blankenhorn hit the home run, and I think I tweeted out, shame on me for being back in this game, but I'm so back. Like, it would take a Travis Blankenhorn three-run home run to draw me back into a game where the Mets looked dead dead to rights. And boy, was I happy to watch this game for the rest of it, because the Mets came back and won. What a fucking miracle. <laughs> yeah, literally. Literally, what a fucking miracle. It, like, I can't believe a, a Sunday afternoon victory against the Pirates has the power to change the Mets season, but it really feels like it may have. What a difference a few hours can make. It felt like the Mets, DeGrom injury news, Lindor out for a while. It said, oh, here, here it comes. Here's Lowell Mets again. We're back. The, the, the national media started dunking on the Mets, as they, yeah, as they always Passan. find a way to do. Everybody all love to dunk on the Mets. I love Jeff Passan, but why, why, why taking shots at the Mets, dude? I don't get it. Every time he tweets about the Mets, he's taking a shot. He never tweets about the Mets in a positive way. Besides the Kamar Rocker pick, which was only really just tweeting positively about Kamar Rocker. He said the Mets were very lucky that he fell into their lap. Like, which he is basically not... like a backhanded compliment. 100% backhanded insult, actually. He will never give the Mets any credit for anything. He did it again today. Like, what? Get our name out of your mouth. It's so weird. I don't get it. I don't understand the vendetta against the Mets. But hey, if it means he's going to be the new the passing jinx, I'm going to start that. Keep tweeting about the Mets when we lose because we came back from six runs today for only the second time in team history where we're down six nothing in the first inning. Have we come back and won? First time they ever came back when they were down six nothing in the first, and their starting pitcher did not make it out of the first inning. First time Even Mets have ever done so. that. Yeah, so mm-hmm. keep tweeting about us when we're losing, Jeff Passan. I will use the passing jinx to our advantage. Before we move off Passan, who I now think is just becoming our bad take of the week, he actually didn't even give the Mets credit when they came back and won. He immediately just threw blame on the Pirates. He said their Mets are ahead 7-6 and ninth. He responded to his initial tweet, and he said the Pirates are the Pirates. What a fucking asshole. Couldn't just be a comeback, right? No. If, like, if this valiant comeback by a first-place team. The Mets really have some, some grit. Yeah, show, showing what a playoff team could look like, you know. Because that is, that is regard, you're still playing Major League Baseball players. A six-run lead in the first, while it's obviously not, you know, impossible, it's impressive that this team didn't just lay down because it really felt like they were going to. Especially after Saturday night. It seemed like they were going to lay down. But they let up, think about this, in three consecutive innings, how many runs did they let up? They let up five and then the Grand Slam made it nine, and then six. So in three innings against the Pittsburgh Pirates, we allowed 15 runs? That's crazy. <laughs> That's disgusting. That's you, I don't even want the Pittsburgh Steelers to score 15 points. I, the Pittsburgh Steelers' offense isn't that great. They don't really do that often either. No offensive line, none at all. But the Pirates found a way, and this met all the credit to Drew Flo for stopping the bleeding immediately and actually giving the Mets a second to breathe because that's really what he did. And then I think we also have to talk about there's a bunch of hits that happened, and I'm sort of like riding this crazy high from this game. But Michael Conforto, man, ninth inning off Richard Rodriguez. Michael Conforto, there he fucking is. Oh my God, this guy has. I'm still not going to say he's back, but boy, has he stunk this year. He has been just absolutely terrible. Talk about crumbling in a big situation. 
except today. He hit the home run. We needed it. Thank you, Michael. I hope that's what we see. As you mentioned earlier, we need it with Lindor out. He is the guy who, not emotionally, because Mike Conforto is a stone cold. He's just ice. Yeah, even today, it was actually some of the most emotion I've ever seen him display on the field. After the home run, he went, yeah, and like flexed his arms around first base. I was like, who's that? Who's that guy? Who's that guy rounding first? But he is the guy, because of how poorly he's played, who can actually work towards replacing Lindor's offensive production. Like, if there's anybody in this lineup besides Lindor and Alonso who could be a five-win player over an entire season, it is Michael Conforto. And he has played to not even close to that so far this year. So his added production will be a major lift for a team that just lost a ton. Major lift. Because he's been so bad, one, but also because there's still so much juice left in that bat. Yeah, you talked about, you know, Stroman being our X factor for the season on the pitching side, which go figure, he really is going to be so important for this team going forward. We're going to need Conforto to be that guy offensively because we know we're going to get Pete. We know we're going to get these other guys, but Conforto has really, out of all the hitters, looked the absolute most lost this year and the most helpless. We need him to come back to that Conforto form even just a little bit, even for these next two months, just look like like the hitter that we know he can be can make all the difference. Definitely. And he had multiple at-bats this game with men on and did not come through. In the first inning, he had the bases loaded two outs and didn't come through. And in the third inning, there were either two men on or the bases loaded. Uh, I think it was Dom was on second base. At, no, Dom was on first, it was first and second. Dom had just hit the single to score Nimmo. I thought it was double down the line. Nagowski smothered it. Conforto came up with two outs and two on and made out again. So twice in the first three innings of this game, Conforto didn't get it done with men on. It just did feel like more of the same. But he did it. And I hope that this clutch hit can ignite a fire under Michael Conforto and put him where we know he is. Light a fire under him, light a fire under the Mets. Taiwan, Stroman, both both very uh, vocal on Twitter after the game about how they appreciate their teammates stepping up. This is good mojo moving into our next series, which leads us perfectly, hopefully, into our next series against the Cincinnati Reds, who are a good team. They are a very good baseball team. That are also located on the Allegheny River. Yes. The, 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 who would have thought we'd be spending this much time in the Allegheny in one summer? I mean, every single summer the Mets play a series in Cincinnati and Pittsburgh, but that's beside the point. <laughs> the Mets, it was a very fun thing today. The bullpen threw eight and two-thirds innings. This is not going to be a fun thing tomorrow night. This is good. This is actually disaster. Nightmare fuel. Well, because we have Jared Eikhoff pitching. Gerard is back. My Gerard. God. Where's Vance Worley when we need him? I'd rather well, see Vance Worley at this you'll, point. You, you probably will on Tuesday, so just get ready for that one. <laughs> yeah, the Mets are uh, We're in trouble here, especially because... Cincinnati is like the band box in baseball, so there's going to be a lot of runs scored. The Mets are going to have to, you have to outscore your opponent every game to win. I understand what I'm saying, but the Mets are going to have to outscore the Reds to win some games here. And luckily, these next two days, the Mets are getting, actually, the next three days, the Mets are somehow missing all of the Reds' good pitchers, which is such a, that's a shot of adrenaline, a B12 shot right in the ass. You have Vladimir Gutierrez, Wade Miley, Jeff Hoffman. That's you got, electric. How do we got, get those three guys? <laughs> but we played a lot of the route one. We got to score seven runs a game. The Mets need to put up a touchdown every single game in Cincinnati, at least. And for the love of God, don't let Jesse Winker beat us, please. <laughs> Luckily, also also playing the lottery, Castellanos is hurt. He probably will not play tomorrow, and he might miss his entire series. Well, that's so, what I'm saying. Don't let Jesse Winker beat us, because that's about the only bat, really, we have to like truly worry about. India's having a good like little stretch here, too. But India's good. India will be good. And Suarez, while he's been dreadful this season, is still a good baseball player. I actually really like Tyler Stevenson. He's my red to watch. He's been playing here and there. He's a fantastic young catcher. He's going to be a very good player in National League for years and years to come. I'm officially uh, fuck Tyler Stevenson. You want to know why? Dude, follow me on Twitter. Unfollowed me recently, like in the last like six wow. months. Wow, how did you find that out? Because I saw he followed me. He's friends with Taylor Trammell, and Taylor Trammell follows me. So Tyler Stevenson followed me out of the blue one day, so I followed him back. I checked back, like, I don't know, maybe in March, and I go, this guy's not following me anymore. You think I care what you have to tweet about Tyler Stevenson? I couldn't care less. What, what tweet of yours do you think did it? What do you think pushed him over the edge? I don't know. Maybe he saw my catcher rankings and I like put him like at like twenty six. Like, there's a possibility there that's there. But like, dude, you also hadn't played at all. So like, what am I just gonna be like? Oh, Tyler Stevenson, top ten because he follows me on Twitter. Maybe <laughs> I'm biased, but I'm not that biased. 
That's so yeah, funny. this is a big, I hope Tyler Stevie goes over. I hope he doesn't get a single hit. I hope he has no hard contact this week. Same with Winker. I hate Winker. I love Winker as a baseball player, especially as a fantasy baseball player. He's the guy. I've been on that train for years knowing he was a good player. But I don't want him to get any hits against the Mets ever again. Never again. No. It, the, I mean, it, he's like, he's a great villain. Though. Like, I hate Nagowski. Like, ugh, gross, disgusting. I respect Winker at least a little bit. Definitely. Jesse Winker is going to be an all-star for years to come in this game. He's a fantastic and, baseball player. And, like, the wave, like, as much as it was, like, like evil, oh, that was so good. It really was. So, like, you, as a fan of, like, baseball and, like, maybe being a little shit here and there, like, that, you appreciate how good that wave is. A hundred percent. You could see a player like Jesse Winker who had pedigree and had production in the minor leagues, who really didn't have the results he had in the major leagues, to pop off with some swag like that after a clutch hit, that's pretty cool. And you know that the Mets fans were giving him endless shit to, like, Winker, Stinker, you know, whatever you want to throw in nicknames there. Like, Mets fans, we deserved it. Let's just hope that we see no waving, because I promise you, if he hits a home run, he will wave. Guarantee. Yeah, no Lock. doubt. Probably right to the dugout, honestly, even though there aren't even that many holdover players from that team right now on this roster. This series, we're really going to feel the lack of Jacob DeGrom. It's going to hurt like hell. Yeah, it's going to be tough. If, if the Mets scrape, I'm going to be bold here, a win out of the series, that's not the worst thing that could happen. No, 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 no. you got to win two games this series. You're facing Vladimir Gutierrez, Wade Miley, and Jeff Hoffman. Yeah, but we just mentioned Gerard Eikhoff and Vance Worley, who are both guys that the Phillies didn't want to pitch for their team anymore. So we're keep probably, that in mind. We're probably going to get the triumphant return of Sean Reed Foley. We're definitely going to see our boy um, Nick Tropiano, Paisan, back in the mix on Tuesday night. Ooh, Tropiano might be Tuesday, yeah. yeah. Or there's an outside chance that the Mets just activate Carrasco and give him two innings, which would be banana land. Yeah, be nuts to give him two innings. Let him let him rehab. Let's let's take him easy. He looked good in Brooklyn last week. He touched ninety four. Like he was good. Two innings, fine. two Ks. Yes, two innings. Yep. It, it, there's he's gonna pitch really soon because we need him really bad. The Mets rotation is so bad right now that on ESPN it like lists the rotations as they come. They already have Gerard Eikhoff written in pen for two starts. That's so bad. <laughs> really bad. Really, really, really bad. Just gotta gut some out. Touchdown every game. Got it. Yeah, we're, we might need a little more touchdown. Might need the two point conversion on those touchdowns. There. It is going to be late game field a, goal. It is going to be a slugfest, and I'm sure when you guys listen to this and we see a couple one nothing pitchers duels between Jeff Hoffman and Vance Worley, you're going to be able to come back to us and say you idiots. But I'll take my chances. I really will. Yeah, me too. It's fine. And looking ahead, the Mets have some pretty terrifying offenses on the horizon. Actually. It's just really Toronto next weekend because the Atlanta offense really is nothing special without Acuna. But in Cincinnati and then home against the Blue Jays, these pitchers are going to have their work cut out for them. And I am terrified of what the road holds without Jacob DeGrom and Francisco Lindor. I'm terrified, but hey, in Jeremy Hefner, we trust. That is our boy. That is our guy. If anybody's going to be able to get something out of Vance Worley, Gerard Eikhoff, Nick Tropiano, uh, Sean Reed Foley, what's another name that we threw out? I I don't know. Jordan Yamamoto maybe comes back at some point. He's probably due at some point. (laughs) It's been 70 days or however long it's been. It's going to hurt like hell when Drew Smith goes down tomorrow just because he has options and threw two and a third innings today. But every Mets fan, don't be upset. Drew Flo's coming back in a couple days. He's going to be a cog in this pen. Also, we're talking about Hefner. If anyone sees me at games the rest of the season, I ordered my Jeremy Hefner black jersey on DHgate. It's coming in, baby. So if you see a Jeremy Hefner jersey at the ballpark, you know it's your boy James. Yeah, I'm I'm gonna be getting a real black jersey. I, that's that's. What I'm, I'm getting thinking. I'm getting a real I'm getting a real one too, but I wanted to just get a fake Hefner one because I'm not gonna yeah. pay for a hundred fifty dollars customized Jeremy Hefner jersey. I'm not yeah, in that no, deep. No. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not on <anima. laughs> But yeah, I, I, Steve Cohen spends money. I'll buy a real jersey every once in a while. But a Hefner one, very much a DH gate purchase. Definitely. I just I wanted to try and get one for when the jerseys actually came back, but the black jerseys seem like they're not going to come in time off the Mets website. There's like a wait list for them. Yeah, it's bizarre. It's super weird. Yeah, like we rolled them out, but we're not ready. But we rolled them out. Which is like so Mets. Yeah, so Mets. But anyway... I think that's going to take us here to the end of the episode. Episode number 33 of the Mets Up Podcast. Make sure you're following us on Twitter and Instagram at Mets Up. YouTube channel, Mets Up Podcast. I'm Giraffe Nick Mark. Mark Luino with James Shiano. Jeter had no range. Thank you guys so much for listening, watching, whatever you're doing. We'll talk to you after this brutal red series that we're in for. Peace <laughs> out, guys. See you later. Thanks for listening.